provided. Dearly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for making unique times like this realities in our lives, and thank you for always being so very patient and merciful towards us. Your children, Father, we are brats at times, this we know. We're just so very grateful for your grace and your love through and through, Father. What a privilege it is to understand you at whatever level you make available to us. And we are privileged, Father, to be able to share the essence that is you with the rest of the world, Father. What a privilege that is. May we never become familiar with it. We pray for those that can't be with us as members of the congregation. We pray for those that are still lost, most of all. We are so very grateful for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Again, just excuse my voice. I'm going to be um, making all kinds of noises. So <clears throat> to start things off, uh, if you haven't noticed by now, um, grace has been at the forefront of our messages as of late. And I was thinking about it, you know, it's impossible to speak of God's grace and God's sovereignty uh, without introducing grace into the conversation. Again, it's impossible to speak of God's sovereignty without introducing grace into the conversation. That may not seem um, like the normal foray into grace to speak about sovereignty of God immediately invokes, in many people's minds anyways, the justice of God, or the judgment of God, or His righteous judgment, or even His right to judge. But if everything is by grace, and we are judged by God, what does that say about God's justice and His judgment? Their grace. And so you, everybody's got this, everybody's got grace messed up in this in this world we live in, uh, and sadly, even within the ranks of Christianity, uh, it's become some awful perversion. And so I had some extra time today, and I happened to um, think about, uh, I know many of you have read uh, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, so I have some quotes from that on the topic of grace. Lovely book up here on the board. <clears throat> Quote, God's grace is the most incredible and insurmountable truth ever to be revealed to the human heart, which is why God has given us His Holy Spirit to superintend the process of more fully revealing the majesty of the work done on our behalf by our Savior. Up here on the board to continue. He teaches us to first cling to, and then enables us to adore. Now, that's very important. He first teaches us, or he teaches us to first cling to, and then enables us to adore with the faith he so graciously supplies, the mercy of God. This mercy has its cause and effect in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what grace looks like. Grace is not anything man has to say about it. Man has defined grace as something very different. Grace out there means accommodating to the human flesh. Anything that makes life easier, any way that I can enable you man to man uh, is gracious. And that's not the way God sees it. And we ought not to accept those kinds of premises as absolute, especially when it's uh, regarding the truth in the Word of God. So we cannot supplant God's definition of something so fundamental as grace with our own. And I think that's why grace um, has been on the forefront of these lessons. Another aspect about grace, if you're honest, is that it leaves us speechless. <laughs> if you... Uh, you would think, you would think that over time, 
the more you learned about his grace, the more articulate you might be on the topic. And maybe theologically you are. But I have found that the more I learn about his grace, the more speechless I am. I don't know even where to begin sometimes. And I'm intimidated by it, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, obviously, Mr. Scott Grande is as well. He, me whoops, he mentioned this on the topic of election on Tuesday. <clears throat> Regarding grace, why did he choose me? I have no idea. Those are your exact words. I have no idea. Why did he choose me? And the disclaimer here is that Scott was expressing his sense of awe and wonder over God's mercy in election. He's not confused about salvation, so don't do that thing. Um, go to uh, Psalm 8, verse 1. I want to read a few verses from this passage that I'm referencing here. Again, what you hear in... Scott's voice is something that is evident in Holy Scripture and other voices as well. Why did he choose me? I have no idea. And it's just an, a throwing up, a sense of awe, a throwing up of the arms, if you would. Psalm 8, verse 1. <clears throat> o Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. Because of your adversaries, to make the enemy in the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for him. You see it? Same thing. What is man that you take thought of him, and the Son of Man, that you care for him? Again, the point on the board is that uh, Scott was just expressing something that is common in the Bible. This sense of wonder. This sense of awe. This profound sense of fear and respect for the holy, sovereign God of the universe. I actually think it's hard to find nowadays in Christianity. I think most people are clinging to a watered-down gospel. Most people have redefined grace as something accommodating to man. And there's very little regard for the sovereignty and the holiness of God. I believe that in the absence of this kind of base humility, a person is devoid of perspective that leads to experiential living in the gospel reality. Again, in the absence of this kind of base humility, a person is devoid of perspective that leads to experiential living <coughs> excuse me, in the gospel reality. I believe, as Scott mentioned on Tuesday, that we are endeavoring to make our way back home. If we're on earth and our Lord has gone to prepare a place for us, this journey, this pilgrim's progress, um, is about making our way back to our home. We as believers are children of God. Um, we prefer to be home with him, um, but also, as Paul would say, whatever's pleasing. This reminds me, of course, of the prodigal son going back home, coming back home, and also of John Bunyan's great work, The Pilgrim's Progress. Again, <coughs> excuse me. <laughs> I highly recommend it. It's essentially an allegory of a man on the road to salvation. I'll give you another quote up here. Sneak this in here from the Pilgrim's Progress. This hill, though high I covet ascend, the difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way of life lies here. 
Come pluck up heart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better though difficult, the right way to go, than wrong though easy, where the end is woe. Not sure when that happened. Um, pretty sure how it happened. Pretty sure who's behind it. But grace has been perverted. And when grace is perverted, pretty much all bets are off, especially regarding peace and contentment in this life. Because if you miss grace and the essence of grace, then you miss the giver of grace. You miss out on his character, his nature, even his love, because grace is an expression of God's love. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that just because we receive grace, there's no struggle. There's no striving. Especially to start with entering through the narrow gate. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Jesus used language like count the cost. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. Pick up your cross. Follow me. He never said there wasn't going to be work. He just said, my yoke is easy, relatively speaking. My burden is light. As I've taught you, the fact that you've been yoked up implies what? Labor. You don't yoke an ox unless you're going to put that ox to labor in a field. Of course, those fields are God's. But somehow it's much more palatable, especially in America, to preach a gospel void of the grace that is found in the Holy Bible. So our beloved evangelist, Mr. Grande, may not be quite as eloquent as Mr. Bunyan, but he's every bit as effective, in my humble opinion. For example, he stated the following on Tuesday as well, up here on the board, on the topic of finding peace. What is home? It's a place of peace in our hearts that God gives us. We arrive at this place when we give up all self-reliance and surrender to God's grace. That's how you find peace. That's how you go home. <laughs> That's how you experience. That's how you live the gospel reality. What is home? It's a place of peace in our hearts that God gives us. We arrive at this place when we give up all self-reliance and surrender to God's grace. So the imagery, excuse me, the imagery of finding our way home back to our beloved Father and Creator is a wonderful way to imagine what sanctification really is. It's a journey. This pilgrim's progress cannot be akin to a treadmill or a works program or an attempt to please God in our flesh. It simply must be that of a lost child listening to the sound of his father's voice. It cannot be, or it cannot be religious in the negative sense of that term. As the Spirit pointed out on Tuesday, the flesh, though, itself is religious by nature, up here on the board. And so we have this mystery of grace. A lot of Christians take credit for their faith. But yet the Bible vehemently speaks about its grace or its faith uh, given as a function of grace. So a lot of Christians take credit for their faith as if God didn't give that to them, whether directly or indirectly. Yet, it's all by grace, even faith, which is why it's such a mystery to human rationale. I'm going to get into this in a little bit, in a moment here, but uh, it's been an interesting week because 
if you teach real powerful but accurate on the sovereignty of God, especially in His election, it rubs the human flesh the wrong way. It makes the human flesh stumble. It even, it even percolates up accusations about teachers that aren't true. A little like echoes of, oh, well, since I can't understand it in my finite brain, then this other thing must be true. So a lot of Christians take credit for their faith, whether directly or indirectly, yet it's all by grace, which is why it's such a mystery to human rationale. Up here on the board, this is something we learned on Tuesday. There's no other way to approach God except in humility. There's no other way to approach God except in humility. Humility accepts the fact that even faith is given by grace. Arrogance boasts that it has its own faith. But we're trying to get home, my friends, right? We're on a journey. We're trying to get to that place of peace. Who doesn't want to be in that place of peace? Some of you look pretty haggard right now. Who doesn't want a slice, excuse me, a slice of heaven in time right now? You try, we're trying to get home. We're trying to get back to our dad, Abba, Father. We're trying to get back to him. And I love the practical example that the Spirit used on Tuesday. What would a mere human king do to someone who approached him in arrogance? If you could even get that close to him. How is it that we approach the king of kings in arrogance? If our King, our Lord and Savior, and specifically, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> specifically His Holy Spirit, the voice in our lives, convicts a person that they are off regarding the word of truth, and as a result, they stumble. Might we conclude that this stumbling is a good thing? Might we conclude that Making a person stumble with the truth is actually a grace gift. It's not accommodating. It's not palatable. It's not supposed to be. It's actually supposed to make the human flesh stumble. Take pause. Stop. Wait a minute. Hold the presses. I would say that that's a grace gift. I would say that if you're running off a cliff and someone gives you a pile driver or a, or a haymaker and stops you from plunging to your death, was the pain worth it? Yeah. Then you know what? That person punching you in the face is actually a grace gift because you're talking about life and death. That's not palatable anymore. If the truth stings somebody, if the truth punches somebody in the face, oh, God forbid, we must not be Christ-like anymore. Because that's not very gracious, is it? How dare I injure someone's pride? How dare I do that thing? How dare we propose? How dare I teach that any of you even do that thing by grace? So I would argue that making someone stumble over the gospel, let's say, is a grace gift. Go to John 6.61. John 6.61. John 6, verse 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? When, 
What then, if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Scott made a good point that um, everything has context. I, I haven't taught you one thing in the last three years. I hope it's that. Read your Bible in context. Don't just say because the word disciples there that everybody that Jesus was speaking to was a disciple. I've taught you this before. There's true believers, there's false believers. There's true professors, there's false professors of faith. There are disciples and there are not disciples. Disciple just means a student. You could be a student of somebody and then totally turn your back on them. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. So you know what? There he is sitting in front of these group, this group of disciples. Did Jesus ever fear making disciples stumble? No. Not at all. Not at all. And you know what? The truth is like that. The truth makes people stumble. And again, I will, re, I will echo it's a good thing. When we're talking about life and death, a throat punch is a good thing. I'm serious. If it keeps a person from certain death, that's a grace gift. Verse 65, and he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. I believe that echoes 44. I don't have the scripture there, but uh, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. It's basically the same thing. And this is offensive to people. Do you understand? I know for a fact that this last statement, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. I know for a fact that this last statement from Jesus makes some people in Christianity stumble. The way that stumbling block uh, has been removed is by disregarding the words of Jesus. Stating that we in the what we some call the church age, I don't care what you call it, are not disciples of Jesus Christ. In other words, we can't be students. We shouldn't actually be students of Jesus Christ, which is heinous. But that's actually being taught. If you backwards engineer it, you think about it, it's because Jesus Christ was terribly offensive. And he knew it. And he had no problem with it. Some theologians say he was a judgment preacher. <laughs> That's how much he talked about hell. Hell's pretty tough pill to swallow, isn't it? He talked about hell much more than he did heaven. So one way of getting around this issue of stumbling over the truth is to just remove it. And, you know, call it grace. You see, I kept you from being punched in the throat. Who's the hero? I didn't let that bad man hurt you. On your way off the cliff. That, my friends, is not grace. Bear with me. I'm using a new app as well, and it keeps skipping on me. I don't want to perseverate on that point, though. Um, we've already covered it several times over the past few years. What the Spirit wants you to realize is that Jesus was getting at, uh, or what Jesus was getting at in John 6, 61 to 65, up here on the board. Fleshly faith never lasts. Sin deceives us into thinking it can and it will. Arrogance makes us stupid enough to think otherwise. Sin deceives us into thinking it can and will. Arrogance makes us stupid enough to think, I should say, think so, not otherwise. 
We call this the boastful pride of life, where our own arrogance blinds us. Go to 1 John 2.15. 1 John 2.15. Bear with me, I'm dealing with several distractions. Not surprised. 1 John 2.15. The boastful pride of life where our own arrogance blinds us. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one excuse me, who does, not, who does the will of God lives forever. And so this boastful pride of life reveals something very sinister about sin. Namely, that it exists in such a way that man often doesn't realize the very presence of the disease itself in himself. That's the sinister thing about sin, and that's why we're on part, what, 65? 65 parts on the deceitfulness of sin? Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? It's because everybody hearing my voice, yours truly as well, has sin in them that hasn't been identified yet. Is offensive to God. Oh, that's okay, isn't it? Is offensive to God somehow, but just needs a shepherd to point things out along the way needs a little help from God the Holy Spirit through a vessel like this one. So this boastful pride of life reveals something very sinister about sin, namely that it exists in such a way that man often doesn't realize the presence of the disease itself in himself. Up here on the board, on the topic of deceitfulness of sin, Darkness allows for the false presumption that man is in control of his own salvation, that his will alone may rightly make demands of God. Again, this is part of the deceitfulness of sin, my friends. Darkness allows for the false presumption, this is the boastful pride of life, the false presumption that man is in control of his own salvation. Just think of the audacity of that. In the presence of the sovereign God of the universe, we suppose that we have some element of control over something as grand as salvation. Again, darkness allows for the false presumption that man is in control of his own salvation, that his will alone may rightly make demands of God. The audacity is overwhelming. Go to John 1, verse 9. John 1, verse 9. The audacity is overwhelming. John 1, verse 9. There was the true light which, coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's not a pill that the average Christian even wants to swallow nowadays. They want to be in control. And matter of fact, most of them have been lied to. That they are in control. That they can make, by their own will, demands of God on His salvation. His grace His graciousness, 
such as remove this here stumbling block and that there stumbling block and I'm good. Broaden the gate, shoehorn the gate a little bit and I'm good. I'm with you, God. Your grace isn't big enough. It needs to be a little bigger so me and Uncle Jimmy and the rest of my cohorts can get in to heaven. That's the will of man. That's not God's will. Again, the audacity is overwhelming up here on the board. We are born, again, we are saved as a function of God's will. And if He doesn't will it, it is not going to happen. How do I know that? Because that's what the Bible tells us. Very, very dogmatically, very, very clearly. Unless you start ripping out passages. Starting with the red letters. Definitely can't have those in there. God forbid we actually become disciples or students of Jesus Christ. You know, the one who came to settle the score, who the gospel is all about, who is literally the centerpiece of the gospel. We don't even believe in the, just the words of the gospel. We believe in a human. We believe in a, the God-man. We believe in Jesus. That is our salvation. Not some prayer, not some uh, forensic uh, detail that Paul fought tooth and nail for, say, in Romans or what have you. Not some watered-down little decision. Him. If we don't look to Him, His person, we're looking in the wrong places. We are born of God. John 1.13 Man cannot cause himself to be born neither physically nor spiritually. Remember, you're dead as a doornail. <clears throat> For example, the language in the Bible is born again. So, I need you to concentrate... <coughs> this is a tough one tonight, guys. This brings us to a very profound crossroads in the honest study of the Word of God. So I need you to concentrate. Take the following at face value for what it is. Truth. And do not, do not make the mistake of using your own inabilities to reconcile this truth with the free will of man as the impetus for wrong thinking. Again, do not make the mistake of using your own inabilities to reconcile this truth, particularly about election and God's sovereign right to choose. Do not make that mistake of using your inabilities to reconcile this truth with the free will of man as the impetus for wrong thinking. It has already happened. I've had several conversations this past week, and I wasn't looking for them. <laughs> I've had several, con and I don't have a problem with it. I think it's great that people are seeking the truth, and they're expressing, hey, I'm a little confused on this or that. Um, but this is how it goes. Because in our weaknesses, we try to... We try to impose our human rational thinking on the things of God. And since we can't think at His level, we start drawing conclusions that actually aren't there. Including putting words into my mouth. I've recently had someone accuse me of saying, I don't believe in free will. I'm like, what, where are you getting your crack? I have never, ever in my life supposed that. Ever. Have I contemplated it? Have I thought of it? Have I mulled it over? Does it give me brain cramps sometimes when I think about it against election? You bet. I'm with you, 100%. But don't ever, don't ever accuse me of that thing because you're struggling with reconciling Election with free will. Just because I teach so strongly about election does not mean I've abandoned free will. <laughs> I teach what's in the Bible. So 
Just know that that's already happened, and it's not just a singular case. I suppose this is why the Spirit had me write this week's blog, which is titled, you ready? The Gift of Faith. The Gift of Faith. FYI, in that blog I explain how we humans are able to reconcile, to whatever degree possible, to the degree that God wants us to, to the degree that we can sleep at night, to the degree that our peace isn't robbed from us and our lament over our inability to reconcile the lofty things of God. That blog is meant to explain how we are able to reconcile God's sovereign election with man's free will. So please, if you're in that group of people that have got a little confused because of the strength of the teaching on God alone saves, read the blog. Because I have not, and I will never, abandon the doctrine of the free will of man. <laughs> Come on. Back to our mainstream study. <laughs> God saves. See? God saves. How do I know? Because that's what the Bible says. It is entirely up to God to save a person. You don't waltz in to the throne of grace and say, I demand this thing because I call it grace. You don't have the option. You don't have the ability to do that thing. God decides where grace is applied. We read that in Romans 9, right? Who are you, old man, to even question me? John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, on the last day. Up here on the board. The only way a person is able to move towards God is if God enables said movement by grace. That's it. Does that make your brain cramp a little bit? Join the club. You know how I can sleep at night? Faith. I have faith that if he tells me one thing and then he tells me another thing, and my human brain, and I'm an engineer, remember, by trade, my human brain starts flizzing out, then I know I'm lacking faith. I know that I'm in my flesh trying to do the work of God. When all along he's just saying, can you just take me at my word? I am God. If I say this is true, and I also say that's true, and you have the inability to be able to reconcile those things, and don't get me wrong, I understand the theology of the omniscience of God, looking down the corridors of time, blah, 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 blah. Of course I get that. But you, you're going to be left with who, how does someone believe then? How does a dead person believe? Oh, he knew you were going to believe. Okay, then how's a dead person believe? Oh, they get up and believe? Oh, a dead person who all they care about is sin, who's completely enraptured in sin itself, is going to magically believe? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Even if that happened, you're still stuck with the issue, the paradox of belief. Because a dead man doesn't believe in anything. He cannot. There's a miracle that happens at salvation. That's what I teach. That's what I believe. Don't ask me to draw it out. Don't ask me how God does it. It's like the apostles said, right? Then who can be saved? What do you say? With man it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. How the heck do I know? How am I going to explain to anybody what happens at salvation? That's between them and the Lord. But I know it happens because I got saved. You got saved. Everybody wants to be a smarty pants, don't they? Well, you see, the omniscience of God looked down a court as a time, predestined us, elected us. Then they make up words like, words that don't even exist to describe things where we have no business functioning in. Isn't there like a whole lot of other scripture we could be focusing on that's actually in the Bible instead of making up things because our pea brain minds can't reconcile things at the level God can? And then we have the audacity to run up to the throne of grace and say, that's not gracious, Lord. 
That's not what my school teacher taught me or my ridiculous parents taught me about the definition of grace. That's not how I see grace. I see grace is this way. Well, too bad. Be lucky he made a way at all. Amen? For real. If that way was this wide, and all of us had to become this skinny to get through it, <laughs> right? If God wanted it to happen, guess what? We're all going on diets. I'm just kidding. We're all going to get that skinny to get through it. And you know what? If it was this big, you know what he would call it? Grace. He said, you see that little thing right there? The fact that I even gave you that little sliver of possibility, given what you deserve, and given your, 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 your condition that you're born into, is called grace. See, man don't like that, does he? He doesn't like it. And that's too damn bad. So I'm going to stand here until the day I die, until he rips me out of here, and I'm going to teach God's sovereign choice and election. You ain't saved unless he wants you to be saved in your free will. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Don't ask me to draw things in between. Don't ask me to articulate it any more than that. I can give you the theology. I know the theology. Some of you like, you know, Joe Smarty Pants. I'm not even settled on the theology. I think the theology goes so far and then drops. And the only thing left is, guess what? Faith. With God, all things are possible. It's a miracle. How the heck did miracles even happen? Can you imagine the people that saw Jesus doing miracles? Like, for real, how did that even, how's that even possible? <laughs> I've known that guy since he was little. He's a crippled blind dude. Now he's up running around doing cartwheels. That's like impossible. Not with God. Not with God. That's what faith looks like, my friends. It's stupendous. It's, it's not even scientific. <laughs> Anyways, the only way a person is able to move towards God is if God enables said movement by grace. Again, I echo my previous point then. Do not make the mistake of using your own inabilities to reconcile this truth with the free will of man as the impetus for wrong thinking. Here's what we know from Holy Scripture. It's that God is in control. Man does not control his destiny. God does. Man may suppose that he is saved, but unless God saves him, he is never saved. We looked at Matthew 7. Excuse me, 20 to 23. Man cannot control God with his own will or whimsical suppositions about God's desire to save. God has a definite wrath reserved for those who suppose such things. Romans 9, 10 to 24. Up here on the board. How about Romans 9, 16 is a piece of that. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God who has mercy. It doesn't matter how religious you are, how much you think you're doing for God. Uh, if God doesn't bestow that miracle, doesn't show you mercy for his own reasons, don't ask me what those reasons are. I mean, I have a general idea. But I know that God, being just, will convict a person to the point where they will know enough about the decision regarding the gospel. But at the end of the day, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Paul wrote the words on the board, right? Who was Paul's personal teacher? Jesus. Whose words do you suppose were the most precious to Paul? Jesus's. Is there any reason why we might be inclined to believe that Jesus taught Paul a different gospel than the one he taught the other apostles? Is there any reason to believe that? No. No. So regarding the gospel that Paul defended throughout the New Testament, is it fair to say that it would have made the same brand of human flesh stumble as it did during Jesus' ministry? 
Yes. That's what the light of truth does. It makes people stumble. That's what the gospel has always done. It makes people stumble. It made people stumble then. It made people stumble in Paul's day. And it makes people stumble now. But apparently, we're not allowed to because of, you know, political correctness or whatever you'd like to call it, social awareness. We're not allowed to make anyone stumble anymore. So that what we've got to do is start taking stuff out of the gospel so that it doesn't make people stumble so hard anymore. Think of Noah. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Did God really ever care about numbers? You say, oh, man, you know, the, I, I can't, I can't like, kill off that many people. <laughs> I can't cast my judgment on that many people. I can't just save a few. Out of all these people, I'm just going to save a few? Yeah. Yeah. God doesn't have that weird limitation that humans have. That, oh, that seems wrong. No, let's back up. Let's adjust our, um, our stance on this stuff. I actually heard in the last presidential debate, not from the person who got into office, the other one, say on public television that we religious people need to change our religion to, to accommodate the times. Literally, from a, from a podium in a debate. Speaking of Christians, well, they need to change their religion. And by the way, this person claims to be a Christian. So is it fair to say that the gospel that Paul defended, you know, the one that made folks in his day stumble, would be the same one that made people stumble during Jesus' ministry? The answer is yes. Is it fair to say that since we are all disciples of Jesus' and Paul's, is it fair to say that the gospel we ought to cling to will make others stumble in the same way? Yes. What do you expect from the gospel? You think this world's improving or degrading? <laughs> it's getting worse. If the gospel stays put, the thing that gets worse stumbles even harder. So if anything, our gospel shouldn't be getting easier to accept. It should be getting harder to accept by societal standards. But for some reason, Satan is behind it. He's got... The church is chasing the masses because, in human terms, God said Noah, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. In human terms, it's a big deal to lose all these people, even though it's their own free will to do so, to let those people run away to their own doom. You know what I'm saying? It's a big deal. We need to adjust the gospel then because we need to fill the seats. We need to have more people shoehorned in to heaven. God doesn't think like that. He said, if they're out of whack, they're out of whack. If they're wrong, they're wrong. I don't care if there's three people. If that's what it is, then that's what it is. If that's the remnant I'm dealing with, then that's what it is. What's our problem? We don't think that way. That's un-American. We want to include everybody. And then throw them all into the same little G God. So I think it's very fair to say Matter of fact, I know it's dogmatically true that the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ is going to make people stumble today the same way it did when Jesus was on the earth and the same way it did when the apostles uh, spread the good news. Here's the point from Sunday's message up here on the board. A different gospel exists. If you remove the, I should say the, if you remove the pristine object of the gospel from the gospel, what are you left with? Hint, Jesus is called the stumbling block and the rock of offense. Answer, you have a gospel that doesn't make anyone stumble. Oh, isn't that just so nice? Isn't that just so appropriate? Isn't that just so PC? But what do you have to do to get to that point? You have to take the very object of the gospel itself, Jesus Christ, out. You have to say, those words that he spoke are intolerable. They're intolerable. We have to get him out of there. 
So that's what's happened. And that's what I would call not orthodox, mainstream Christianity. I consider this church orthodox. I don't even consider us Protestant as opposed to, say, Roman Catholicism. I consider us orthodox. And I don't care about titles. I'm just saying that my concern is about that book. You have a gospel that doesn't make anyone stumble up here on the board. You think Paul had that problem? You think Paul taught the same things I'm teaching right now? I don't know. You tell me. 2 Corinthians 11.4 For if anyone comes and preaches another Jesus from whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. In other words, I'd rather offend the holy God of the universe than my neighbor. I'd rather the church chase down the masses um, because in my pea brain, I'm going to try to force more people into heaven. I'd rather do that and be offensive to the holy God of the universe than to my neighbor who I happen to be chasing. Here's the essence of the lie being peddled by the kingdom of darkness in Christian churches nowadays up here on the board. And of course it has to do with grace. That's how we started off this evening. I'm almost out of time. I can't believe it. But God's grace is not man's. Man defines graciousness along the same vein as tolerance and political correctness. For example, it's wrong to be offensive or to make someone stumble, even if it's over the truth. God defines grace as providing a way to salvation regardless if it is disagreeable to human sensibilities. And you can broaden the term salvation because you know salvation always carries with it the idea of deliverance. So even as a believer, you can say, well, what does that mean for me? Well, God's, God defines grace as providing a way for your deliverance, regardless of if it is disagreeable to your sensibilities. In other words, there may be times when you have to suffer you might say, but it's, you know, but it's, quote, undeserved. So? You may not realize that you're heading in the wrong direction. You may not realize that someone who you just started a relationship, a friendship with, is literally from the devil. You may not realize that. You may have blinders on on purpose. You may get burned. You may ache. You may get your heart broken. All those things may happen. And God's saying, good, because I'd rather have that happen to you than 10 years down the road, you're, you know, you all over again, except instead of it being mistake number 100, it's mistake number 101. I'd rather stop you now. I'd rather hurt you now. I'd rather you curse me now. And the same goes, of course, with salvation proper. I'd rather give you a throat punch so that you stumble than see you literally run off a cliff to your own death. What's more gracious? You tell me. Stated more practically, and I call this anti-grace grace teaching because all the proponents of modern Christianity use the word grace like a punchline, <clears throat> but it's actually a perversion. It's actually anti-grace it's not God's. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. 1 John 3, 7. Do not be afraid to stand up for Jesus, my friends. Never allow someone to remove his words from your lips, just so a lesser grace may be supposed. Fight for Jesus. Fight to keep him as the object of the gospel he brought, taught, and defended with his own life. How about fight for him? Instead of for your Silly little, petty little relationships. How about fighting for Jesus? Jesus said, follow me. Exclamation point. Jesus said, follow me. So that's a command, right? And the end goal of a command is to obey which is why we ended this way on Sunday. 
There's no better day to obey God than today. If your life seems to become more complicated, hit the Bible and your knees even harder. If your life seems to become more complicated, hit the Bible and your knees even harder. I'll kind of leave you with some thoughts here. At this juncture of your spiritual careers, to most of you, I say, put down every other book, even the so-called doctrinal ones, and pick up your Bible. Pick up your Bible. There's only one infallible source of all truth, and it is right under your noses as I teach you here this evening. That is, that is the gold refined by fire. Do you understand? That's where it's at. That's, that's everything you need is in that book. Not any other book. There's no other book. I don't care if you take the most reputable theologian in the history of mankind. His words are still garbage comparatively. Comparatively. I'm not saying they're garbage. You know what I'm saying. His words are still flawed. Those are God-breathed. Those are literally from God. Why allow sin to introduce doubt and confusion and its ugly stepsisters, fear and anxiety? Cling to simple things up here on the board. After all, the truth is actually the easiest thing of all to understand. It really is. And that's the beauty of clarity over time. When you are sanctified, what you realize is all the white noise just sort of fades away. And you're left with truth. And it's very simple. And it's immutable, so it doesn't, it's not, you know, you don't have to like chase it around. It's very simple. It's solid, it's immutable, it's truth, and it's easy to understand. Rest in the fact that once equipped with biblical truth, becomes <laughs> part of your arsenal as an enlisted soldier for Christ. Up here on the board, John 14, 26. But the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So not only do you have the impeccable word of God under your nose, but you also have the impeccable teacher, God the Holy Spirit, willing to walk you through this life that you're living. To help you to bring into remembrance Holy Scripture at just the right time. The point of application that critical point of discernment, however you'd like to look at it, at just the right time, you have the holy God of the universe, His power through God the Holy Spirit, helping you. That's very different than what most Christians believe, as far as I can see it. So I'll close with this. Why 64 parts so far in this series, you might ask? Because the landscape is large, life is big, sin is pervasive, and I'll leave you with this, this is a, it's funny, like I just said, it's very simple, 64 part series, and we keep coming back to this one little thing, this one little definition, sin is any lack of conformity to God's will, whether expressed actively or passively, any lack of conformity to God's will, <coughs> everybody be saved and come to the knowledge of him, right? The God-man said, follow me. Any questions? I mean, that's, that's his will. That's why it's a sin not to follow him. That's why individuals are literally stated as dying in their sins. Again, the simple definition for sin, sin is any lack of conformity to God's will, whether expressed actively or passively. As simple as that is, it's cause for 
are ongoing. 64 parts so far. This has been an amazing, amazing journey, a wonderful pilgrimage. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Definitely, Father, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to study your word here this evening. Thank you for humbling us with truth. It may sting, Father, but we know that you love us, and that's what counts. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Amen.